Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right, did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? Just a beautiful reminder of the Father's love, the depth that he would be willing to leave 99 and come after the one. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was very beautiful and personal this morning. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. How far he goes. Anybody else? All right, so this week we have a double portion. It's Tazria and Matsora. And, you know, as we come into this, you know, uh, is anybody who's excited about this portion? <laughs> you know, when, uh, when I think to how many times people have asked, oh, what's your favorite scripture? Or what's your favorite passage in the Bible or favorite book of the Bible? You know, I can't ever remember anyone quoting anything from these portions. <laughs> you know, and, and I laugh about it because, you know, here we, we're talking about human contamination, skin diseases, inflammations, a lot of offerings, a lot of confusing matters, even things that seem contradictory, make you scratch your head. And uh, it's, well, it's, it's the one that you pick up and say, wow. Now I see why people get tired when they read Leviticus, right? <laughs> but the, the truth is, there's a lot of beauty even in what's uh, in these portions. God didn't make a mistake in it, and his wisdom's beyond ours. So while we could look at these offerings and conditions on which someone is isolated and when they're not isolated and such and say, wow, that beats me, I don't understand, we could do that. Or we could ask, why is this? Right? So today we're going to do some of the asking, why is this? But before we ask, why is this, maybe we have to even ask, what is this? Right? <laughs> and so now we're going we're gonna to get into that, into what is Sara'at. But one thing that was just repeatedly on my mind this morning was this idea that everybody at their core wants to be good and to do good. So you think about that, and you're like, wait a minute, I know some pretty wicked people, or I, you know, and surely they're not at their core wanting to do good and be good, but, but I, I'm going to go a little beyond that and say, well, in their current state, sure, they're rejecting good, and they're pursuing that which is not good, but if you go back to the beginning of who they were before everything in their life has brought them to this place, then we could say, okay, well, you know what, at their core... There was a desire to be good, to do well, to do good, right? And somewhere along the way, they got off, right? But within the soul of every person is, whether they know it or not, is a desire to be reconciled and to have restoration and to return to their creator, right? There's just obstacles that are in the way that would keep them. And funny enough, as, as you mentioned, Cynthia, about the, the one who's strayed and God's desire is to go after that one and bring him back, you know? So 
Yeah, the, just the idea that everyone in their core wants to do, be good and to do good. But the, the problem is, along the way in our lives, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we've come into a place of contamination and separation. And then there's this need for the, the contamination to be removed. You know, and then, then we have to go through a process of purification and, and restoration. And that's really a lot of what we see in this week's double portion, is we have the story of a person, well, even, uh, even it begins with childbirth, right? And saying that there is some separation that occurs. There's a process of uh, purification and restoration. And then even with the Mitzorah, the one who has had the affliction of Tzara'at, They've been contaminated, isolated. Through repentance, the, the contamination is removed. And then they go through a whole process of bringing offerings and the seven-day purification. And then they have the ultimate restoration when the Kohen makes atonement for them. So this is a story of our lives individually and, our, and the need for our own cleansing and restoration. Um, and restoration of right relationship with God and restoration of right relationship within the community, right? And then it, it, even going a little further too, it's also for the community where there's a restoration that needs to be taking place with God. So when we go through and we look at, at the portion today, we'll talk about uh, the individual who is the Metzora, the one with Tzara'at, and then also we'll talk about the, the building that is, has the affliction of Tzara'at as well. Right, so you have both the individual and you have the body. Okay, the, 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 uh, the house being a picture of the body, even of the temple. So we'll, we'll go into those different things. But we need this cleansing. And I had read a, a note in the Chumash that I thought was really good. So I'll read that here. So if we start with the idea of removing the contamination that we have, Right, but don't go through purification and restoration. If we just go with the removal of contamination, is that enough? And the comment here is, the mere absence of contamination is not yet the fulfillment of man's goal. Human aspiration must rise higher than the elimination of the negative. It must strive for positive achievement. One is not completely cleansed until one has come to the resting place of God's presence with an offering that represents atonement for the past and dedication for the future. Right. So there's the aspect of desiring the restoration of the good and to do good. And so you come into the presence of the Lord and really through His provision, you come into a place of atonement and then you're also making a dedication for the future, right? To do good, having been made good, right? And that's restoration. Okay, so let's go into the whole question of what is this with Tzara'at? Okay, because that's kind of a tough word, Tzara'at. So Leviticus 13, 1 through 3 says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests. 
and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. Okay, so here we are starting out and saying, okay, this is a disease of the body that is coming forth, and it's evidenced in the skin, and the person who is suspected to have the disease is brought before the priest, and the priest will do an inspection and determine whether or not the affliction exists. All right, so often in our, in our translations, as we read here, tsara'at is described as leprosy. And within the biblical context of it, it's not, con, it's not actually associated with the idea of what we understand leprosy to be today. Um, for people who are in Torah club recently, we went over this a few weeks ago in some detail about the idea of it not being Hansen's disease, but rather something kind of all all its own, okay? Now, with this, it's rather unusual with regard to how we normally think of a disease and how it would be transmitted from one to another. We think if you have the disease, you're contagious, and if you're around someone, they're going to get it, right? But the interesting thing about this disease is that one does not actually have it until the priest declares that they have it. So in other words, they may have the signs of it, right? But until the priest actually looks at it and says, okay, this is the affliction, then that person has no need to quarantine or or isolate from the community. But once the the priest says, this is it, then the person has to leave the community and be outside the camp. Now normally you think, well, they they were already contagious, right? But if, if the priest says, no, it's, this isn't it, then, then they're not contagious and they're okay. They're around you. Now, in the case of a, of a bride who is going to be married, if she's showing the symptoms, they wouldn't bring her to the priest until after the wedding and after the week-long celebration. Right? But if it was contagious, that's when you would want to have her out of the community, right? not being in the midst of everybody for seven days. Right? So the understanding of this was more that this was a, uh, a divine, well, one that was not according to the normal aspects of how diseases operate, but one that um, is spiritually produced. So you have a spiritual malady that then manifests in a physical form. And from our discussion at Torah Club, there was a lot of debate on this question of whether or not it is. Now, um, the traditional understanding of this throughout time has been that it's been a spiritual disease, one that is brought on through various sins, such as slander. Um, there's a few others. Slander is the most common one, but bloodshed, false oaths, sexual immorality, immorality uh, a haughty spirit, robbery, selfishness, all of these things would be con- potential spiritual contaminations that would, that would then manifest in a physical affliction. And we know that illness can be connected to sin. Not all illness is connected to sin, but uh, some are. And this is one that is believed to be that. So for the sake of today's discussion, I'm going to go forward with the assumption that this is a spiritual malady that has a physical manifestation. 
and we'll look at um, we'll look at some some symbolism with regard to this. Now, if talking about kind of the contradictions with things that don't make sense in this and why it doesn't appear to be a normal affliction is Leviticus thirteen twelve through seventeen. Okay, so normally when the scripture was talking about these these skin issues, it would be a spot on the body, and they would watch to see is the spot growing, is it you know is the inflammation below the the top surface of the skin and whatnot. But in this case, this says if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin, so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to toe, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look. And if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It has all turned white, and he is clean. So when you're so infected that your whole body is covered, you're pure. And now you can perform the, uh, the offerings and come back within the community. But you're totally covered with it. It's not gone. So you would think that would be the time they should really be out of the community. Now then, look at verse 14. But when the raw flesh appears, when, the, when healthy flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. So now when he starts to heal, he has to go out of the camp. Right? So again, this is mind-boggling. And the priest shall examine the, the, the healthy flesh and pronounce him unclean. Anyway, yeah, so it's interesting. Okay, so let's go on to uh, also Leviticus 14.36. This is the case, this is with regard to Sarah that's in a house. The priest is called to come look at it. And he comes and he, he says... Empty the house, before, well, the scripture says, the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the diseased, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And after the, afterward, the priest shall go in and see the house. So if the priest goes in and sees it and says, wow, this is Tara'at, he says this is unclean, then the building and everything in it are considered unclean. Right? But if they take everything out of the house first, and then he goes in and says it's unclean, then all the things that were in the house are okay. Right? So again, this just seems strange. Right? There's some definite oddities that make you scratch your head, and maybe we all end up do coming away saying, yeah, I don't get it. It's beyond me. Right? <laughs> but needless to say, this, this, it's not our normal understanding of how we would treat a, um, a virus or something. You think about... Um, you know, what we have recently with the whole COVID thing, it's like, man, spray down everything. Get the Lysol, get the Clorox, and we're, we're cleaning everything up, right? But instead of be like, no, no, go ahead and just take all that stuff out. It's okay. <laughs> anyway, not to beat a dead horse there. Okay, so we've got a spiritual condition often brought on by evil speech and uh, is the most common understanding and explanation of it. Okay. So in Leviticus 13, 45 through 46, let's take a look there because this is where we talk about the, when a person has been declared unclean or to be, have the affliction of Sarah'at. This is what the scripture says is done with them. The leprous person who has the, the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. 
he shall live alone, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Okay, so the whole time that they have this, they have to live outside the camp. They are in isolation. And the Metzorah is considered to be like a dead person. Okay, so it's, it's almost as though they're regarded as the walking dead. They're not touchable. They can't be within the camp. They have to be completely exiled from everyone who loves them and everyone that they love. And the ritual impurity brought on by a, by a Metzorah is light is essentially the same as the ritual impurity that's brought on by a corpse. So if a corpse were inside a tent, then everything inside the tent would be ritually impure. Okay? And if a Metzora goes into a tent, then everything inside that tent is also ritually impure. Okay? So the way that it's handled is as though this is a dead person walking who needs to be brought back to life, right? And the only way back to life is the removal of the contamination, the purification, and the restoration, okay? Um, also in the Talmud, it speaks of a, a Metzora as being one who is light. Well, they compare a Metzora to one who is mourning the death of someone, and they also commu- compare them to someone who has been excommunicated from the community for some other reason, and so there's this understanding that the, the Metzora is mourning really his own death and is totally isolated from, from everyone. Now, within the Bible, we have an example, too, of the idea of a Metzora being, or one who has Sara'at as being among the dead. And it comes from Numbers 12.12, 12, when Miriam and Aaron spoke negatively about Moses, right? Miriam was afflicted with leprosy. Her skin became white as snow. And Aaron, he's interceding for her. And he says, let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb, right? So he's liking her in her condition as being one who is dead, even though she's alive. So, so the concept of a metzora having the, these ritual impurities similar to that of a corpse or being like a dead person and treated as such is found there in that example with Miriam. Okay, so now the, the quarantine or the isolation of a, of a metzora is not intended to be permanent, right? It's to bring about repentance such that there can be restoration, it's not, uh, it's not like seven days to flatten the curve <laughs> that turns into 400 days, right? It's uh, seven days of quarantine with the hope of restoration, right? But then, you know, the quarantine of the Metzora is as long as it needs to be until they experience their healing. Okay, so let's, let's go... Uh, so before we go anywhere else, so speaking of this person who is contaminated and outside the camp, this is, this is understood to be a picture of the Messiah as well, not just of a person who has sinned and is put into exile. And from the Talmud in Sanhedrin 98b, there's a discussion going on about what's the name of the Messiah. 
And they go through and, and they mention several names of the Messiah that are pulled from the scriptures. Um, I can't remember what all the instances are, but there's the idea about his name is Yanan because he was there before creation. And there's, very di- there's different names. And one of it comes through, one description comes through and, and says, And the rabbis say the name of Messiah is the leper of the house of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. As it is stated, Indeed, our illnesses he did bear, and our pains he endured. Yet we did esteem him injured, stricken by God, and afflicted. Okay, this is from Isaiah 53, 4. And this is written in the Talmud, where they, they took this verse and said, He bore our pains, right? We esteemed him afflicted, stricken by God. And this word for afflicted is negua. So the afflicted is Nagua. Now, Nagua is the you know, adjective form of a word nega. Okay? And nega is the affliction, the word the affliction word for tsaraat. So when you read an affliction of tsaraat, it's a nega of tsaraat. Now, the word nega is not commonly used in the Torah. It's only used in two situations. One, in the description of Sara'at, and two, associated with the plague, the tenth plague. So in the scriptures, when, when in Exodus 1, 1, where he said, yet one more plague I will send, he said, one more nega I will send. Interestingly. So there's a connection here between this affliction of Sara'at and the Passover. So we're going to come back to that a little bit. Because, you know, if it's only used twice in the Torah, I think there's, God's saying there's some kind of connection here. All right, so we'll come back to that. But so Messiah is understood to be, one of his names is understood to be a leper. Now, within this, Yeshua takes the sin of the world upon himself. He takes on contamination. Scripture says that he became sin on our behalf, right? So that in itself would be a a connection with the idea of the Messiah being the leper who takes on the sin, who is taken outside the camp and put in exile from the nation, right? Because that's where he sits today, exiled from his people, just as Joseph was exiled in Egypt from his brothers. One day there would be a restoration, right? Where Joseph and his brothers would be reunited. And there will be a day when Yeshua and his brothers are reunited. Now, when the Mitzorah is in isolation, if he, if he experiences healing, if, he be, if the removal of the contamination occurs, then he's to be brought to the priest so that the priest can examine him and declare him pure. And in Leviticus 14, 1 through 11, we get to see what the process is of this cleansing. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp, right? Because the Metzor cannot come into the camp until he's been pierced. So the priest goes out to examine him. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, 
Then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. The one to be cleansed shall then wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe in water and be clean. Now afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside his tent for seven days. It will be on the seventh day that he shall shave off all his hair. He shall shave his head and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and be clean. Now on the eighth day, he is to take two male lambs without defect and a yearling ewe lamb without defect and three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. And the priest who pronounces him clean shall present the man to be cleansed and the aforesaid before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Okay, so then there's more that actually goes into what the priest does with the blood and the oil. We won't read all of that, but interestingly enough, he's taking the blood and he's putting it on the ear and the thumb, and it all very much mimics the anointing of the priests. Right. So here's a leper who is outside the camp who has now been brought and shown to the priest who then goes through a offering procedure that very much parallels the Pesach. Wait, hang on one second. Hang on one second. I'm coming to you. Very much parallels the Pesach offering, right, with the crimson, like the, the, the wood that's got the blood on it, the hyssop that's got the blood on it, right? And then an anointing as though a priest. Go ahead, Chris. Okay. Uh, I don't want to, like, jump to conclusions here, but I guess I just will. It's sort of like he's been resurrected in a way uh, because it's like a total death has now happened. Like, instead of trying to reverse his rod, you just, we're not going to end it. You will die. But it's so you can come back, you know? Mm-hmm. It's so whatever is within you dies with you, and then you are, com- you are, you are now reborn. So you need to be anointed again. Uh-huh. So that's why. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah. No, that, that's really good because the, the Mitzorah was dead. Mm-hmm. In his transgressions, but now has been brought back. And what, what happens on the last day of the seven days? Well, he is fully stripped and then immersed. Okay? Yeah. What happened on the seventh day of Passover? The children of Israel went through the water, right? They, they had their immersion, new birth, in, into a, an entirely new thing, and now anointed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's from death to life. Yes. Absolutely. And that's, that's another thing of what makes it so interesting that this is so much connected to the Passover because mm-hmm. the Passover was from death to life, from slavery to Pharaoh to life unto God. Yeah. And now here's this Metzorah who's outside the camp, who's in the wilderness, who's totally lost, as though dead and a slave to his own sin that has put him in that situation. And now... Is being redeemed out of that into a new life. Yep, from shame to honor. Yeah, from shame to honor, from death to new life. 
Resurrection. Yeah. Yeah, it's... There's even that seven day... The seven days between... But they're not really part of the camp yet. Kind of like they've left Egypt, but they haven't gone through the waters yet. That kind of in-between transition phase. And the shaving made me think, too, of being reborn, because like a baby is naked, you know, without hair, and so they're shaving everything off to be like a baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's excellent, because, um, yeah, here they are. It's a a new birth, right? And, you know, uh, uh, Rabbi David Foreman, is that right, David Foreman? I think that's his name. Uh, has really good teaching on this with regard to the connections between this portion and the Passover. Um, And so we're kind of hitting some aspects of what what he talked about there. But the idea of this new birth, so there's this seven-day period from when he's called pure until he shaved and passes through the waters and into the new life. And for seven days in Passover... There's something that has to be kept outside your camp. <laughs> it's the chametz, right? The sin has to be kept outside the camp. And then seven days are done. You have your immersion through the water. And then you have an eighth day, right? And last week we talked some about the eighth day. The eighth day being a time of new beginnings and renewals, right? Because last week was Shemini. And that was talking about the eighth day when the tabernacle was permanently uh, established and the priesthood was serving in it. Well, the the eighth day is known as Yom Hagulah, Yom Hegeulah, right? The day of the redemption. It's the day of the redemption, and on the eighth day, that's when the Metzora brings his offerings, and is now allowed to live in his in his tent within the camp, fully restored. It's the new beginning, but it's also it's this birth, right? So if we looked at the priest here takes the blood of the bird and he, he's dipping cedar wood into it, he's dipping hyssop into it and the live bird, right? Well, this is all tying back to Passover when they took the hyssop and they dipped it in the blood of the lamb and they put it on their doorpost and lintel and on the, the threshold, right? So here you've got an opening covered in blood by which you pass through into a new life, and then the, you pass through the blood, and you pass through the waters. You pass through the blood on the first day, when, they, when the children of Israel came out of their homes, and then the exodus occurred, and then the seventh day, they passed through the waters, right? So we have it all happening here. The, and, and the new birth that's happening here is a new birth of the individual who is now being restored back into the community, right? They had been isolated from the community. Now they're restored to their brothers, and so you look here and you see the picture of Yeshua, right? Who is the one who was, took on sin, who was taken outside the camp, who died, who has been outside the camp, separated from his brothers. But will one day, through his own blood, bring the full restoration and reestablishment of, of a complete body. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, really, really a neat picture. Okay, so let's go time-wise. Okay, so we talked about the Mitzvah being spiritually dead, needing to come back to life. And that's our connection with, with Passover. Now there's a couple more connections here with Passover. 
I just want to jump to this quickly. So a few weeks ago as well, we talked about how Passover has a connection with Joseph, right? Because Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold into Egypt. He was in exile. He was thought as dead, but he really lived, right? He was thought to be dead, but he was really alive. He was just in a place that was foreign, and he was not recognizable, right? But God brought him back to his family through a whole set of circumstances, right? So the same thing to the Jewish people. Yeshua is like dead, yet he lives, right? He's a, he appears to be in a foreign place, and he's not recognizable. But God's going to bring it about to where he is recognizable, and he is brought back. And this is one of the things that um, I heard, uh, I've heard a few teachings on where within the scriptures it says that the, the Metzorah has to be brought to the priest, right, by someone who's outside the camp. Someone outside the camp has to take the Metzorah to the priest. And so this idea of someone being outside the camp is the idea, can be a picture of the Christian church bringing Yeshua to the priest to have the priest look at him and say, we, we considered him afflicted and cursed, but yet he's pure, right? And now let us anoint him and have him brought fully back in for the restoration, right? So that actually shows a great high calling for, for the Christian church, for the body of believers to take Yeshua, to understand him, to know him, to live as he lived, and then to go and present him to the priests as the one who is pure in such a way that the priest can actually recognize him as being the one who is pure, right? That's part of what our calling is to do, is to present the true Messiah both to the priest and to the world, right? All right, let's, um, let's go talk about the, the building a little bit because this, this is another interesting thing. Sarah in a home. Sorry, my notes were all over the place. I reorganized them uh, after I printed them. Isn't that good? That's the way to do it. Um, <laughs> so let me find where... Oh, here we are. Okay, Leviticus 14... 33. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, there seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look, if the priest has if the disease has spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take out the stones in which is the disease and throw them into an unclean place outside the city. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around and the plaster that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones 
and put them in the place of those stones, and he shall take other plaster and plaster the house. If the disease breaks out again in the house after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look, and if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent leprous disease in the house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house, its stones and timber and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place. But if the priest comes and looks, and if the disease has not spread in the house after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean, for the disease is healed. Okay, now then the scriptures go on to say that that house that is declared pure um, still undergoes the same offering that is given for the Metzorah who is being purified. Um, with the respect of the two, two birds, the crimson, the hyssop, and the cedar. Now, within this, there's various opinions about Tzara'at and home. There are some who think it was a blessing from God and that it was used to reveal which walls should be torn down of the Canaanites because the Canaanites hid their treasures in their walls. So that, that could be. There are many that have that opinion. Um, and then there, there's some other opinions. Now, one I've heard from a credible source, but I haven't seen it myself, was the, the idea that there are some who say there has never been a house that has been afflicted with Tzara'at, nor will there ever be. And so they say the reason why it was put here in the scriptures was because it was a metaphor for us to understand something deeper, right? So more than just the plain and simple meaning, but what's the deep and hidden meaning? And so the understanding here is that the, the house that has the tzara'at in it is a picture of the temple. And so you have two temples. You had one that had been defiled and it had stones torn out, but then it was restored. And then the affliction continued and spread, and so it was entirely wiped out. Right? And there's even thoughts about it. There, there are connections to a third temple as well. But the idea of Okay, so there was a restoration that was done, yet through baseless hatred, the second temple was totally destroyed. Every stone was torn down. So that could be a picture here of the, of the house that was found to still be afflicted and had been torn. And, and uh, you know, it's certainly possible. Um, and then we know, too, that Yeshua himself is a picture of the temple. He likened himself unto a temple that was destroyed on behalf of the, on the, of the nation, and he was killed for the same reason that the temple was, second temple was destroyed on the means of baseless hatred. He was hated without cause. And so his life was destroyed, yet would be resurrected. Now, on this, on this, I see an additional thought to it, which... I don't know if it's right or not, but you have a house <clears throat> that has problems and the priest comes and evaluates it and says, this house has problems. These stones that are contaminated need to be taken out. And even the, the plaster that held them in place, the mortar that held them in place, remove all that. Now bring new stones and build them together with it and replaster it. In my mind, I see the, a picture of the, the commonwealth of Israel, right? And if you, I'm starting to think about the, the olive tree that had natural branch, branches that were cut off. 
Not all the branches were cut off, but the cutting off of the branches made room for wild branches to be grafted in. Right? And the wild branches are grafted in, and it's now one new body. Am I making a connection here with something? Okay, so if we look at Romans 11, verse 17, Paul's speaking about this very thing. He says, if some branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So, you, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Right? So that's a beautiful picture. Now, you know, speaking, when Paul's speaking here, he says, you've been grafted in. It's the root that supports you, not you that supports the root. Now, don't become proud such that you yourself aren't cut off, right? And when we're looking here about this, this house that had the, the tzara'at in it, the stones that were contaminated were taken out, the clean ones were left, and then new stones were brought in, the two made into one, right? And then the plaster was put on. Now the whole thing could still be destroyed if the tzara'at continued. So now this goes back to the song we were singing, Behold how good it is for brothers to dwell in unity, right? For if the brothers don't dwell in unity but dwell in baseless hatred, then the tzara'at will break out in the home again. And then what happens to the home? It's inspected by the priest, and the priest says it's not pure. They tear it down. But our calling is to be the, the home that is pure and not afflicted by tzara'at, to dwell in unity such that when the priest comes and evaluates his house, the house, he says, it is pure. And then again, through offerings that are tied to Pesach, full restoration is, is brought. So again, through the blood of the lamb, even though in this case it's through the blood of a bird, but Tzipor, bird, is another name for, for Messiah. So it's still through the blood of Messiah. Restoration is made for this. All right, so I'm not going to go too much longer. But with these thoughts of the individual who through contamination is now walking dead, who needs to go from death to life, and who can attain that really through repentance and through a touch from the Lord, right? Because there's not a record of, of a healing of, of leprosy within Israel until the time of Yeshua, who healed multiple lepers, right? He had uh, Naaman the Syrian who had been healed, but there's not another record of it. So the healing had to come through Yeshua. But um, so thinking about that aspect on the individual level and then thinking about the stones of a house and these stones being put together 
making up the house. I was drawn to a few passages in the epistles that I'd like to, to look at. So just with those concepts in mind, let's read these few verses here, starting in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, and and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Yeshua Messiah, so that the coming ages, in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Messiah Yeshua. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Yeshua Messiah for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Yeshua Messiah... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then continuing in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Yeshua Messiah himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here you have the two being made one, into one dwelling place. Those who were dead being brought to life such that they might become part of this unified body. And then also in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verses 1 through, or I guess through 2 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Right? So here tied back to sins that would bring forth the contamination that causes separation. Like newborn infants. Like newborn infants. Were we talking about a new birth? Right? And how did our portion start out? Talked about the offerings brought after childbirth. And the offerings brought after childbirth strangely put right there in between the laws of kosher and contamination by animals and then next to human contamination. So there's a connection between this rebirth and the laws of the Mitzorah and all tied back to Passover. Anyway, pretty cool, right? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, again, speaking of Yeshua, the living stone rejected by men who is the cornerstone, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua Messiah. What happens to the the Metzorah who's brought back into the community? The stone that was cast off but now is being brought back in, they're anointed as a priest. Right? Like, like a priest's anointing with the blood on the ear and the thumb. Actually, it's the right ear. And he says, 
uh, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or among the nations honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right. I almost feel like that passage, he was <laughs> pulling things from the story of uh, the Metzora, or maybe I'm just taking things from the Metzora and putting it into that passage. But the idea is that God has taken those who were dead in their transgressions, brought them back to life and fitted them back living stones built together into a holy temple as a holy priesthood, as a dwelling place of the presence of the Lord. And in that place, there has to be purity, putting aside of all malice, slander, such that you don't return to the former state of contamination that would cause you not to be able to continue to dwell in the presence of God. And so that's part of our call within our lives. We've been made this new creation through a new birth. We were dead, but yet now we live. And now we proclaim the excellencies of the one who was dead, but who now lives forevermore. As it says in Revelation 1.18, when Yeshua speaks of him being the first and the last who lives forevermore. So he's made us a new creation. He's brought about the restoration that we long for. That all long to be good and to do good. And then in, in him and through him, we can do that, right? So we press on through sanctification, purification of our spiritual souls and into our physical beings, causing this physical reality to reflect the spiritual reality. Just as the spiritual reality, the spiritual defilement that was in the Metzora brought forth a, brought forth a physical defilement the new creation that we've made, been made with the pure creation with righteousness, we now get to have that flow through to our physical. Again, the spiritual reality manifesting in the physical. It's, it's the reversal, the reverse of that, of that curse, really. And then from there, we get to speak forth truth. In Matthew 12, 34 to 37, Scripture, Yeshua is speaking, he says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. So the overflow of the heart the mouth will speak. And may that which is good come forth from our mouths as we pursue the righteousness of Yeshua, 
the one who bore all of our afflictions so that he might give us this new birth. Amen. Does anybody have any thoughts, questions, comments? It's just a theme that doesn't, it persists. It, it doesn't go away, that we have to die. Yeah. We, we just can't remain how we are, mm-hmm. especially if uh, you were the way you were before. Uh, it's just, it, at least for me, it doesn't, <laughs> it's like right here. Um, so I don't know. It's just definitely, uh, you know, it's, it's a, like a near eternal message for us to just be encouraged to, to die daily, like we're supposed to be reminded to. And uh, it's just very real. So that's what I've got. Yeah. Yeah, we we die to the flesh and we live by the Spirit under the Lord in that new life that we've been given. And individually and as a community, right? The restoration on both levels. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and bless you. We thank you. Lord, for the goodness that you show us and who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for even the pictures within this portion that point us back to the exodus, to the birth of a nation, to the birth of a people. And in this, Lord, your desire is the restoration of your people. Restoration of your people, Lord, in every form. Thank you, Lord, that you pursue us. That you've given us all we need for life and godliness. And that you've given us this new life, this new birth, Lord. May we continually be in awe of what you've done and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called to live and let your light shine through us, Lord. We bless you and thank you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.